Hello, everybody. This is G, and you're listening to the Sit Rep Podcast, your home for everything modern military gaming. And today, joining us at the command table is Ralph from England. Morning, folks. And well, we- afternoon for you. <laughs> and we have Jim all the way from sunny Florida. Hello, everybody. So uh, Chris is up in Great White North of Canada, um, and I think he got some snow, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to cut him in later at some point. I know he's running back and forth between a few different jobs, so we are definitely going to try and get him in the show, whether we uh, cut him in later at some point. But for now, we want to thank you for being with us today. Um, I know we're kind of off our regular time track, uh, but due to the Easter weekend holiday, Uh, We decided to give the crew the weekend off, so we are uh, one week later than normal. That's okay. Everybody deserves a little bit of holiday time. Uh, Speaking of holiday time, Ralph, have you gotten any chance to do any kind of hobbying over the last couple of weeks? A little bit of painting. Seems I'm doing my spetsnats up in multicam, so I've just done one of the spectra spetsnats with the PKM kneeling and i pr- built and primed black my tiger from empress for them so they have a a vehicle ready as well yeah it looks really good to, i haven't got around to building the t14 yet but that'll be the the last thing i do and then give that a blast with some some different colors possibly maybe do it in the straight russian armor green that's all the pictures are but i've seen some other pictures of people doing it in some sort of camo so and i might actually try zenithing it as well zenith priming it so oh okay to help with it with it so we'll see what happens with it so what's a nice piece of resin yeah it looks good from the pictures i've seen so what is your plan with these vehicles the well they'll be the tiger will be part of the spec will be for the russians for spec now and the T14 might be part of that or it might just be an objective piece i haven't decided yet or it might actually go in ultra combat in that terms of because that'll, that'll, that's going to be vehicles and infantry. So, yeah. So, that might be the point. It was just to add uh, a piece of heavy armor to the to the minis because I haven't actually got a modern piece of heavy armor. I've got a warrior um, primed, but that was for Sangin. So, I haven't got a, like an OP4 piece of heavy armor. So, I decided to get a T14. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Nice, so it is a really nice piece of kit, though. It really is a nice model. So you're you're thinking of using it more as an objective piece than an actual playable piece in uh, in the game at this point, it, at least. Yeah, at least to a point. I mean, it depends on the type of game. You know, if if the game demands that we have, you know, heavy heavy vehicles, then you know you can roll the T14 in. But then it's looking in the spec out rules, going, mm, what type of tank is it? Because <laughs> because they have got different types of tank. They've got the standard sort of main battle tank, and they've got the new type of battle tank with the armor so it depends just what type it is but of course there's not a lot of information about the t14 is there no yeah you're right on Compared that to say the t the t90 and t the t90 and t72s and stuff because the t14 from what i gather hasn't actually been used in combat anywhere i don't think they've rolled down into syria i don't think the russians have been putting them into syria so not that i'm aware we'll of now we'll see what happens awesome uh, anything else? Have you been doing any of the Division 2 gaming? Um, well, I'm max level on Division 2, so i am been doing some of the um, what's called invasion points from their PMC villain, villainish faction called the Black Tusk. So been blasting 
and around and that, but it's just I haven't really got a lot of time at the moment. Um, work is sort of piling up, shall we say. So Yeah, yeah. And damn work. It's always getting in the way of the good stuff. Yeah, yeah. Life gets in the way of hobbies. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, excellent. All right, Jim, you're up. So what have you been up to hobby-wise? Um, a lot of work as well, yeah. but, uh, you know, make it work somehow. Um, on top of that, uh, episodes of the Op Center. So we've been doing some um, Air War C21 gaming. Uh, we actually had a live stream on that a little while ago that I think went pretty well. Yeah, uh, that was really fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I figured you would say such as you, you, know, you shot down all three of my barrages and didn't even get your Harrier scratched once, but that's okay. That's actually how most of the uh, most of the game most of the air battles went in that conflict. Um, in fact, in most of the Air War C21 scenarios they give you for the uh, Falklands rules supplement or scenario supplement, usually if the British lose a single Harrier, that's that's game. Um, because as a player, if you've lost at least one Harrier, you've already done in air-to-air combat. You've already done worse than the historical uh, outcomes were. So in a historical model game, you've technically already lost. Yeah. Just by losing one Harrier. No Harriers were lost in air-to-air combat uh, in that conflict. Um, so we're doing some Air War C-21. I'm also uh, trying to figure out Naval War. Uh, I'm sorry, Naval Command by Rory Crabb uh, to do some of the more large-scale operational level uh, air, land, and sea combined arms stuff that took place uh, during the Falklands, again, to support the future uh, parts of the Op Center um, series. Uh, the jury's still out on that system. Um, I haven't really tried it yet, and I'm having some difficulty making it work. There uh-huh. seems to be some conflict between different editions of the game. Uh, the charts that are with the base game do not line up with the charts that are in the Falkland supplement. And uh, at, at pretty fundamental levels, like literally how many damage points each ship has and how damage points even work in, in that game. So there's, there, it, it'll probably work, but I have a little bit of work to do to, to do on that one still. Air War C-21 still going great. I'm also building counters for Paras, Commandos, and Argentinian conscripts for Valor and Victory Falcons uh, to get the ground war going on that, on that uh, conflict. Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah, pretty much just everything Falklands. Awesome. Um, yeah, for Op Center and for uh, weekend gaming uh, going forward. Awesome. I, I have to say, um, I watched your first episode of the Op Center, and I learned a lot. Uh, a lot of stuff I'm not really familiar up with the Falklands. I re- vaguely remember it when I was a kid being on the yep. news. But other, you know, outside of that, I didn't really know a lot about it. And what I found amazing was that uh, in the initial stages, the Argentinians actually captured the, uh, were they Royal Marines? Um, yeah. That were on the island at the time and sent them home, which I thought was yeah. very interesting instead of holding on to them. So, um, well, that, that war kind of begins by accident and it begins in stages. So, Again, there was there were political movements in, in the, the British Parliament or whatever that had been kind of rejected, but I won't get into all the politics of it, but the idea that the Falklands were 100% British um, w- was not really 100% um, accepted by everyone, uh, even in Great Britain itself. Um, I think the war has kind of calcified that into they're definitely the British. 
because now there's been a war fought over it, and the British obviously resoundingly won that war. So now there's no, you know, now there's no question. But at the time, they weren't even full British citizens. Um, there were there was a, a small political movement even in the UK to kind of, you know, almost like Hong Kong kind of lease this this these islands back to the Argentinians eventually. So the Argentinians reached out and grabbed them didn't think that the British were going to send a big task force down. They didn't think a big war was going to start. Uh-huh. So in the in the interest of kind of keeping things as cool as possible, uh, they treated these prisoners pretty well. Uh, they sent them back immediately. Like some of them went back in time to come back and take part in the counter invasion. And they sent them right home. There was no, uh, you know, Hanoi Hilton in Buenos Aires uh, by any stretch of the imagination. They were home, you know, right, right off the bat. Because, again, I think the Argentinians didn't expect a big war to go on. The Americans were still involved as third-party negotiators. Everybody was trying to keep this war from happening. So at least in that first part of April, when the Argentinians pulled their stunt in South Georgia and also the Falklands, they were being very, very uh, cool as far as, uh, you know, sending back prisoners, not, you know, conducting any kind of a, you know, reprisal against any of the civilians in there. Um, doing anything like that. Because, again, they were trying to keep that war from really getting started. It's not until the sinking of the uh, the Belgrano. Um, we'll get that, into that in part three of the series. Uh, the series is now going to be four parts instead of three. It just wasn't going to fit in three parts. Excellent. Uh, it's, not, it's not until the sinking of the Belgrano. Uh, that's the British, I'm sorry, that's the Argentinian uh, light cruiser um, by HMS Conqueror. Uh, by, that's a that's a, a British nuclear powered submarine. That it's now officially a real war, and there's no they, all peace hopes, diplomacy, you know, embassies, everything just straight out dies. Three hundred and sixty eight people died aboard uh, the, aboard the Belgrano, and it's still a major major thing in Argentina. Um, there's also a lot of political and diplomatic um, issues about whether or not that attack was justified or whatever. Obviously, the British have one position. The Argentinians have another. Um, but once that ship goes down with that many people, you know, dying, that was May 2nd, you know, so almost a full month later. Okay, now it's a war and prisoners aren't going home until the issue is resolved one way or the other. But up until then, people were, were really holding out hope that this wasn't going to turn into a big thing. Sure. So so prisoners were going back. Nobody was getting, you know, kicked around. Nobody was getting handcuffed to a chair in a basement or anything. You know, things were being held very, uh, things were being handled very, uh, uh, very politely up until that point. Excellent. So I have to ask, up to this point, what game system um is your favorite as far as this theater of battles that you've experienced, have played, or have researched that you're either played or looking forward to playing? Well, if I can get Naval Wars, uh, I'm sorry, I keep calling it that, Naval Command by Rory Crabb, if I can get that system to work, that's going to be a great one. Um, I can't really give that one uh, a, a fair review yet because, again, I haven't actually gotten a chance to to really crack it open and play it yet. Uh-huh. Um, so far, Air War C-21 is definitely awesome. I mean, Valor and Victory is always great. Um, but Air War C-21 really uh, does a pretty good job at, without getting into super technical, you know, how many megahertz, what's the frequency of the radar, like down to the super technical details. It's, it's very, uh, but at, at the same time, it really shows the flight characteristic differences 
and the technological differences, and that's going to affect the tactical differences. I mean, as you experienced yeah. uh, with, with, with your Harriers, my Mirages could do things that your Harriers could not do and vice versa. And so without a whole bunch of special rules or silly cards or stat lines or, you know, these kind of, you know, top down, you know, force you to play by this way, you know, kind of rules that a lot of game systems tend to impose us, impose on us these days. The game gives you these aircraft. You learn very, very quickly what they're good at, what they're not good at. And so you adapt your own tactics. And because the game is realistic enough, the realism of your tactics become almost an emergent property. Pretty soon you're playing the way the British really flew those Harriers, the way the Argentinians really flew those Mirages, Mm -hmm. not because the game told you to, but because the game was able to show you how those aircraft really behave and your answers to the problem, so to speak, become the same answers as the people on the scene. Uh, vicariously, of course. And before you know it, you're actually, you know, recreating uh, small parts of the Falklands War. Awesome. You know, sitting here listening to you talk, um, just an idea popped in my head, and I'm sending this challenge out to all three of us, four of us technically with Chris. I'll talk to him about this offline. Maybe at some point we should explore some type of review of a game or rule system, you know, like a, a small short video or some kind of posting or something, you know, obviously between series of Op Center and uh, Ghost Ops and things like that. But I know people out there would be very interested in hearing uh, reviews of different games, um, especially stuff that maybe they're not familiar with or haven't really heard about that, you know, like Air War. Um, Right. You know, because not many people would know about it, but it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Um, and it's one of those games that I think others would enjoy as well. And, you know, if we could do a quick review, um, you know, we could talk about that later, obviously offline, but maybe that's something people would be interested in is some kind of, you know, review from us saying, Hey, have you seen this game? You know, this is how it plays. This is what we think of it. So some, just keep, uh, planting the seed in the back of your minds. Absolutely. Yeah. We've done, we did an episode of this when we reviewed and went through Scott Sangan, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's there. So, yeah, it's definitely something to think about, especially picking not so much obscure games because, you know, Air Wars on the the platform war game are the, the, the same as Drive Through. It's the, the war game version of that. So, yeah. so it is there. Yeah. It's something the that none of, yeah, none of us would have even possibly looked at had we not been covering, say, the Falklands or something that has right. an air war component to it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, between the more popular systems um, and then, you know, when we just, like in Jim's case, researching Falklands and comes across this game, that it definitely merits us doing a review and saying, hey, you should check this game out. Or if some big games comes across, you know, I'm like, ooh, you know, I think part of our responsibility as journalists as you will or content creators yep. is to say not to slam anybody's product but to say yep. you may want to skip this one or if you do decide to play it this is how i would recommend making it a better experience you know what i mean right. mm-hmm. yeah there are games that are going to require a little bit more legwork yeah um 
Yeah, full disclosure, uh, Air War C-21, these games go through multiple editions. And what seems, this happened in Air War C-21. I was able to resolve it. And it seems to be happening again with uh, Naval Command is they'll come out with this game. It's, you know, a PDF creation. It gets posted on Wargamer Vault. People download it, you know, throw a few bucks, you know, toward the publisher. Everything's great. And then a new version comes out and a new version comes out and a new edition comes out. Meanwhile, back, you know, three editions ago, they released a uh, something for the Falklands or the Gulf War or who knows what. Um, this also happened with uh, Tactical Combat Middle East, the uh, the update for Panzer Leader in the 1991 Gulf War and 2003 Iraqi Freedom. Um, there'll be a new edition that comes out later, and you'll grab that, you know, you'll download the latest edition, and then you'll download, you know, the rules pack for the specific scenario, uh, campaign booklet or whatever, and it's not even close. You know, they made significant changes to the system. It's not really clear what edition that scenario pack was made for. And before you know it, you're in Excel and, uh, you know, Adobe, and you're basically recreating the game yourself. And it's like, why did I, you know, why did I pay money to download this if I was going to, you know, especially if you're somebody, you know, who designs most of their own board games anyway. Right. Um, you know, you go to a website, you pay some money to play somebody else's game, you know, take it easy on yourself for a damn change. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, before you know it, you're, you're wind up doing a lot of the legwork anyway. Um, for Air War C-21, it wasn't that big a deal. It was like one afternoon of work. Um, and again, I think it was just mostly to bring an earlier edition Falklands supplement up to the latest edition, uh, which is a lot better. They did make some big improvements. Um, I don't know if it's going to be that easy with Naval Command yet. Uh, I'm still, you know, I, I, the jury's still out on that one. Um, but hopefully, uh, yeah, obviously, you know, hopefully we want the Naval Command to work because Naval Command brings in ships putting troops on the ground ships fighting each other you've got submarines and you've got helicopters excellent there are, yeah there are no helicopters in uh, air war c21 air war c21 is all about jets and you do have ships and ground targets but they're represented in a very abstract way it's like you know you have to make a roll and did you hit the target you get x victory points for hitting the target can you sink the ship how much damage do you do on the ship but there's not like a miniature of the ship on the table or, or anything like that. Um, real quick, Air War C-21 is usually played with either one to 300 or one to 600 miniatures. Um, that's either six mil or three mil uh, aircraft on a six by three table is the usual way that a, a game is played wow. for people who might be interested. Wow. Um, the scale is logarithmic, but it's a, it's roughly 50 miles per, 50 knots per inch of movement and uh, like 30 second turns or so. And, um, what was I going to say? Uh, roughly half a mile per inch. But again, the scale is logarithmic. So. I thought you uh, translated it well to a hex encounter uh, game. Well, yeah, I, I put it on like a 2D like virtual surface so we can play it online. Mm -hmm. um, it, it does have a grid, but, we're, but we are playing it with a ruler. So it's not really hex encounter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know, like, you know, Hex Encounter is, like, almost synonymous with Ariskany by this point. Ariskany is like, you know, it's got to be Hex Encounter. No, it really doesn't. You know, it's just, that's, you know, really easy for a lot of, uh, for a lot of ground systems. Air systems, where you can turn, you know, all kinds of different uh, degrees uh, for your turns, a, a Hex system doesn't, you know, there are times when a Hex Encounter system doesn't work. Yeah. Or wouldn't work, and this would, this would be one of them. Um, so I wanted to keep this one also because I was, you know, representing a 
a published game that's out there, you know, that an actual gaming company has come out with. I was trying to represent it as uh, as close to the source material as possible. Cool. So, yeah, that's uh, definitely something to think about in the future, uh, doing some type of reviews for people. Um, if anybody out there has suggestions or requests for different game systems they'd like us to take a look at, please mention in the comments or shoot us a message on our Facebook page. Um, for myself, for hobby-wise, um, I've done a little bit of painting. I plan on this week prior to the show, obviously, I'm going to start working on one of the ultra-modern combat minis. Um, I'll do that live stream. I did a impromptu live stream of Arma 3. Um, boy, I tell you what, I'm having the worst luck with that. So, um, really? Oh, yeah. So, I um, crashed an Apache, hit the wires. Oh, gotcha. Yep. <laughs> I called in fire support. Um, I don't know if anybody saw it, but there were several people on. But I called in fire support. I had two Apaches come in. They hit several targets, and both of them got knocked out of the sky. Um, I had an A-10 come in. It hit a target, and it got knocked out of the sky. Um, the Russian Federation anti-air teams are extremely, extremely tough. I was going to um, say, what is there like a nest of shilkas in there? What What is... Uh... What is hiding in that village? Well, the, the thing is, and I guess I could give away the secret at this point. So basically, the mission is you have a company-sized element inside this village of Russian Federation troops that you have to eliminate. When you get within a certain distance from the center, or in the case of air support, so there's like a, a circumference area of responsibility. Once you cross this imaginary border, there are a element of close of ground to air um what do they call them air anti-aircraft teams uh mm -hmm. in about a mile or two down the road and as soon as they cross that border they activate and they come in so you're hitting the initial target you don't notice the anti-air until you're already on target and then those anti-air engage you so it's almost right. like you get ambushed yeah so it makes it tough. But what kind of anti-air assets are we, are we talking about? Like shoulder fire, like SA-22s? Um, I'm going to go, well, they're, um, I think they're shoulder fired, but they're also on BMPs. So um, I don't know. Is there any BMP mounted anti-air? Not that I've ever heard of. Okay. So this is all man pad then at this point. I mean, you could, I, I guess, launch the new... Um, AT-5s at a low-flying helicopter if you were really desperate. It's a it's a it's an optic-guided missile. You basically put the TV camera on the missile and you know yeah. you joystick it to the target. But that helicopter has to be pretty much sitting damn still and you know asking to be hit at that point. To my knowledge, there's no unless things like the SA-8 or the SA-6. I think those are mounted on tank chassis. Like, but I don't I don't know if there's a, those are BMPs or not. Hmm. There's some pictures on YouTube, but the only pictures, oh, sorry, on Google, and the only ones there are the ZU 23 You know, the, the, the 23, yeah, 23 yeah. 4 is the 23 uh, yeah. 23-2s. Oh, those are like like on the back of uh, mm -hmm. a 23-2 on the back of a BMP? Yeah, that's a YouTube video really? of a, a ZU, uh, uh, um, 
a ZU twenty three two on a BMP one. It's yes. like my exercise. Two twenty three millimeter cannons, right? Mm-hmm. But no radar yeah. guidance. No, it's not. It's it's yeah. yeah. That's a ground support vehicle. Yeah, it's basically they've taken the turret off the BMP and put it a put a, a Z a ZU twenty three two on the back of it. It looks like it was something like you see in Afghanistan, you know, in the back of the tentacles. Yeah. It's that. And all it's yeah. done is take the BMP. Without, we actually ran across this in some of our uh, our Lebanon gaming. Mm-hmm. Um, I brought in Israeli helicopters, and Rasmus had a uh, a technical with the two 23 millimeter cannons on the back. He's like, "Can I engage the 23 millimeter cannons against the helicopters?" The answer is no, even though those are anti aircraft guns, because they're anti aircraft guns on the back of an improvised vehicle. So there's no radar guidance. The crew isn't trained to engage aircraft. That's anti-aircraft guns being put into a ground support role. And if that BMP does not have radar guidance, the big radar dish you see on the back of the Shoka, then uh, I doubt it's going to be very good at engaging aircraft. Again, unless that Apache is just kind of sitting there looking for targets or circling or, you know, please hit me, you know, big sign hanging off the back of the, heli- back of the helicopter, mm-hmm. uh, which I doubt. No, they were. Uh, they came in, hit target, and then did an orbit. And as they were orbiting, is when they got hit. So, oh well, it's all part of the fun and research. Yep. So you get some. Uh, you need to get some wild weasels in there and suppress that air defense first. Yeah, there you go. That would be awesome. Um, what was I? Gonna, oh, newswise, Ralph, you saw something recently. Yeah, um, Stephen dropped um, some previews of four new greens for the next bunch of Spectre releases. Um, they all look like, well, in the pictures, they're all, you know, the, the greens. So they're all carrying a mixture of um, Chris Vector 1s or Chris Vector 2s. So they look quite, quite nice as minis. And it could be classed as Mercs or PMC or whatever, because it looks like they're short sleeves, you know, flak vests, stuff like that. Um, I saw them and immediately thought, oh, Division Agents from the new version of the Division 2, because that's set in um, seven months after the original in Washington, D.C. during the summer. So, you know, the, the sort of map there, just a little bit of a conversion of putting like a rucksack or a sports bag on the back or whatever. Um, but they were Stephen dropped them this week, so and all set of some uh, work in progress shots of the new team on its way soon. So I'm assuming a month, maybe, maybe a little bit longer. But look really nice. I've sent the link in to everybody, so that so you can have a look. Awesome, and I I do know um, Tim from Footsore Miniatures now uh, with their new modern range. Uh, Tim used to have his own company special artisan service yeah. managers and i believe they've been folded into footsore right is my understanding now um he's been showing off some yeah um sas right aren't they sas um yeah it's a sts it's his urban um or whatever uh urban assault or you know uh versions of them i think similar to the, to the spec range so yeah i saw them they look quite they look nice you know, there's a lot of modern seem to be coming out. I know that um, Empress have been showing off their Vietnam range, which looks yeah. really yeah. nice. Yeah, they do. Uh, um, their Marines, especially the guy carrying the um, the M79, sort of cocked, ready to be uh, open, ready to be loaded. He's got an M79 ready to be loaded, and I think there's one where he's got it aimed, ready to be fired. So. Oh, he's got a thumper. But they look, yeah, he's yeah. got a 
don't know. Um, looks really nice. The do that looks really nice as a set of minis. So that's going to be an interesting one because I don't then, know if anyone. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Finish up. Well, well, the the interesting thing's going to be now that we've got Warlord moving into Korea. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. there'll be a lot of World War Two stroke, late war stroke, possibly mid fifty minis coming out. I would have thought. Uh huh. Depending on depending on what what it is, you know. So we'll probably get some Chinese because I don't think anywhere I don't think Warlord have done any modern Chinese per se. Because um, if you class would class Korea as a modern modern conflict because it's post war world war Two, so we'll probably get some north koreans we'll get some chinese i would thought we'll get vehicles going with them which are probably going to be jim probably knows a little bit better than me but would there be russian in armor with that lot or would it be with, chinese uh, armor? uh in, in korea yeah uh, you're looking at uh the only ones i've ever seen are t34 t3485s in korea so, so that's late war uh, soviet war. medium armor yeah. Mm-hmm. No, no T55s or any, any of that yeah. stuff. So, does that mean once Warlord have done all they can with Korea, are they going to step forward again? Because that's been one of the big asks by everybody, Ooh. you know, doing Vietnam. Doing Vietnam. Yeah. Which means, uh, granted, you know, if they do it, that means we would end up getting a bunch of plastics that would be perfect for converting. Oh, kit bashing together and stuff like that. Before I uh, unleash Jim, um, <laughs> my thoughts on Vietnam. Well, even a 28 mil, it would have to be platoon to squad size. You couldn't go bigger. Um, right. no. It's just the, the ranges because, yeah. you know, you're getting into yeah. um, ridiculous amounts of weaponry. But again, you got to remember, bolt action is designed to it's be platoon. a period themed game <laughs> not a historically exactly. accurate slash simulation game so but i i mean i'm all for a vietnam era game um it would i would like to see um battlefront revisit vietnam you know all in full earnest at 15 mil or less so that's my feeling on it jim it's your turn um okay uh I actually think that Vietnam would be a really good fit for uh, would be a really good fit for for bolt action. Oh. Um, actually, I really do. Um, I think in some ways bolt action might be a better fit for Vietnam than it is for World War II, uh, because I've, I've said it a million times. I'll say it a million and one. Bolt action works best, and I think it was originally designed as this as an infantry game. And of course, Bolt, uh, Vietnam is primarily an infantry conflict. Yeah, that makes sense. Also, yeah, with the cities, uh, people don't people tend to forget that Vietnam was, to a large extent, also an urban conflict, as well as a jungle conflict. But between this urban setting and especially, of course, the the more stereotypical jungle setting, the ranges are very short. This makes again this plays strictly to uh, Bolt Action's strengths. Mm-hmm. Bolt Action is a short range infantry game with nice 28 millimeter miniatures. Um, at the uh, Desert Boot Camp, Desert War Boot Camp back, I think that was in uh, September, uh, I was talking with Charlie from Warlord Games about the possibility of uh, bolt action going into uh, uh, going into Vietnam and converting a World War II infantry system into a Vietnam infantry system. 
and we did talk about it and they are serious about or, but I, I mean i'm sure we are, we can't speak for the whole company here but it seemed like they were serious about it at the time and uh yeah we talked about some ideas because i mean i've done this same exercise myself with um barry doyle's valorant victory i took world war ii infantry based squad based system mm-hmm. converted it to vietnam and i ran across all the issues that you're going to run across um the difficulties and the challenges and the opportunities as well uh these are going to be the same things that they're going to run into when they have to do this for bolt action so we talked about it um you know we'll, we'll stay in touch i mean who knows you know if they're gonna go through with this or if they're gonna be looking for outside um you know opinions or whatever you know but um there are definitely there are definitely ways to do it it's not as simple as it sounds and we've probably talked about this before on the on, on the podcast. There are some. Uh, it's not just giving everybody new guns. There's all. There's also some very serious dynamics to, you know, casualty evacuation, uh, the civilians, um, hidden movement probably for the Viet Cong or the NVA. There, there are definitely some things you have to work out. Uh, yeah, the whole idea of support weapons blows completely wide open. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you've got your you've got your World War II squad, which is based, which was usually eight to nine men, carrying semi-automatic weapons, and maybe one guy in that team had an automatic weapon. That's usually a squad-based light machine gun. Okay. Well, you fast forward to Vietnam. There's no such thing as a light or medium or heavy. There's a general-purpose machine gun now. Everyone's yeah. carrying around a PKM. An RPK or, an or yeah, or an M60. Um, everything's firing 30 caliber of at least of those machine guns. Then you've got the Americans who are walking around with uh, M16s, which are basically light machine guns by bolt action, you know, definition. And you've got the AKs, which are again 30 caliber, fully automatic. They're basically everyone's walking around with a Bren gun. It's a 20 or 30 round box firing 30 caliber ammunition, and uh, yeah, it's it's nasty. And that's their basic weapons. Then, you know, there's usually at least two or three M60s in the squad. Mm-hmm. Marines organized in three fire teams per, per, per squad, and each squad had its own M60. The M79s, Ralph was talking about before, the M72 Law, um, the uh, B40s that the NVA was using, these are basically Chinese knockoffs of the RPG 7. Uh, you've got RPGs, booby traps. Uh, yeah, there's a lot going on there. It's not just. Hey, let's make up some new miniatures and come up with a couple new rules and give everybody be- better guns for you know updating from World War II to Korea. Yeah, victory victory conditions and you know scenario design has to get a big overhaul. There's a lot into it, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's definitely doable, and uh, I actually think it would work uh, because yeah. of what bolt action is good at and what Vietnam presents. It might actually work better than World War II in a, in a certain kind of way. A couple of things there, though, Jim, as well as is the um, thing about bolt action. Now, you could you could almost translate one of the weapon types because the Germans have got the um, M44. Yeah, yep. the, yeah, the 44. So technically, that's an assault rifle. Yeah, it totally is. It's the father of so, all assault rifles. This so, was in so, the yeah, uh, you know what I mean? so This was in the either, the, the, the 56 uh, episode of SITREP, we said, you know, yeah. look, it's for people who want to use bolt action in the Arab Israeli wars, mm-hmm. don't just load up everybody with, I say STG 44s, but, you know, what we're, that's, that's the, that's the, for people who like to play, 
bolt yeah. action in a modern setting, that's what they do. They take the STG44 and they use that as an AK, and it's yeah. it's close enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an AK, and, and you can, you know you can tweak things like that. Um, the other thing as well is, do you think with them stepping into Korea that that is the starting point to look at bringing in more modern weaponry, shall we say? You know, with with looking, you know, with, we're stepping in Korea, so it's late war, but there's going to be technologies coming in if they do more books that will affect that go beyond late war. So, you know, you're possibly looking at, you know, with them doing the MASH unit. And yes, we know that's that's a themed unit, you know, uh, based around the TV series, but helicopter, you know, things like that. So the old, you know, for evacuations and stuff like that. So I'm wondering if they're using Korea as a, a testing bed, if you know what I mean? To it, would test definitely, uh, it would definitely be a first step. Um, I would caution that it would be a baby step yeah uh, that's, steps, that's what I'm thinking. yeah a very very baby step i mean they're literally dipping their toe in the, if, if they're mm-hmm. i mean we're, we're completely speaking as if we all work at warlord games which obviously mm-hmm. we don't so complete conjecture on my part here disclaimer um, yeah um if if what we're saying is true and if warlord is using the korea expansion as the first step into modern wargaming it is a baby pinky toe in the water to see just how cold the water is it is a very very limited and safe first step um infantry combat has not really changed we we kind of talked about this in an earlier episode infantry combat really hasn't changed at all uh meaningfully the mix of weapons in the squad has changed a little a little bit more uh, carbines and automatic weapons fire support but the basic weapons haven't changed m1 garands m1 garand carbines ppshs for the chinese and the north koreans sks rifles you know there's no ak's yet there's no m16s yet um really that's it tanks okay you've got some persians and you have a handful of centurions mm. people like to talk about the centurions in korea there there are a few but we're talking about like literally a handful like five or six um it's not until you get into the air that things really took a big step up again with the battlefield use of the helicopter uh in a non-combat role albeit but still they were using them in the field um there was no such thing as a korean war gunship obviously and um like the jets uh we see big time jet you know jet on jet air air combat um but on the ground, I'd, I'd, you know, through the, through the keyhole through which bolt action is going to look at the way, you know, way the wars work, it's um, it's an interesting step. It's a optimistic step. Let's hope for the best. But um, we should also kind of, you know, not kid ourselves. It's a baby step. It's a very, very, you know, let's 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 you know, dangle our feet in the water and see how cold it is. It's it's they're they're barely getting started. Yeah, because I don't think there's been any cyst any. Caught, there's there's stuff on Wargamer Vault that people have created, but I don't think there's been any system written specifically to for the Vietnam, you know, for that conflict. You know, for there's, there's been well, no for Vietnam, for Vietnam itself. You know, the, the, to do, you know, to to game within that, apart from Battlefront doing it in fifteen mil. Uh, there's Charlie uh, Surf. There, there's actually a bunch of systems yeah. out there. For Vietnam. is in, but they're not not done by a, shall we say, an established company, because I don't think 
you know, Charlie does surf, I've never heard of who did that. In a way, you've got like Warlord, Battlefront, Spectre, Sangin, you know, the, the big companies, shall we say. It's, you know, compared to, say, the companies that seem to put out their PDFs and stuff that go off on Wargaming Vault and stuff like that is what I'm trying to say is, you know, there's there hasn't been a somebody with enough money behind to promote it, shall we say, apart from, say, Battlefront, to, to try and get people to to buy into their system, use it. Where I think with Warlord dipping into Korea, that's going to open up them, open up people looking at it. And like, and the obvious thing might be as if they start moving further and further into the Korean War, getting new models, getting new miniatures, and then possibly stepping even further. But that, you know, it would be, I would think, at least two, three, four, maybe five years off. You know, it's not going to be an instant one because we know Warlord will be concentrating on game books for their other systems. So you're going to have yeah. more campaign books for World War Two. We're going to have possibly campaign books for Korea. Um, and then take it from there. But I think it's an interesting one, and especially when they showed off one of the, the first sort of vehicles they're doing, which is the Centurion. So, you know, a plastic Centurion. It looks really nice as a, as a model. So I'm guessing we'll see what they actually do. But I think it's an interesting time now for all, for all of the companies seem to be looking at modern conflicts mm-hmm. or modern gaming as a way of, of expanding out from what they currently do. You know, and, and I, I truly believe it's people like Spectre and uh, Sangin that have sort of pushed the envelope to get these companies to start looking at that. Oh, I would agree. I think if you look at now versus even a year ago, the amount of yeah. stuff that has moved towards modern or companies that have started producing modern miniatures and the amount of attention brought to it um, is has grown. You know, it mm-hmm. really has. So it's very exciting to see that. You know, listen to you guys talk. I, I Two things came to mind. I have two questions for each of you. The first question mm-hmm. is, taking bolt actions, new Korea system, game, whatever we want to call yep. it at this point, yep. what battle do you think would translate well for bolt action in Korea? Second question is, what type of battle or scenario would translate well for bolt action Vietnam. Now we know it hasn't been even discussed outside of a casual conversation, mm-hmm. but why I asked that is because when I was listening to you guys talk about different things related to how it, which surprised me, Jim, that you, uh, you know, and you, you totally sold me on it uh, right. as far as bolt action being better for the type of combat in Vietnam. First thing came to mind is an A camp on the border of Laos or Cambodia and running patrols, you know, with your um, your SF teams and your Montagnards, you know, those type of things. Um, right. So let me ask you the question. So first question one, Korea, what do you think what battle or scenario would be ideal for bolt action Korea? Uh, Ralph, you want to go first? Um, I'm just um, I'm just googling <laughs> Korean War battles. We, uh, I hear I hear keys coming <laughs> in the background. There. All right, let me jump in real quick. Um, 
again, everyone knows my bias. I'm not. I'm not, I'm not ashamed of it. But I'm going to go ahead and Actually, I've got one, Jim. I, uh, I would one, go I with uh, Inchon. Um, the landings at Inchon, and uh, that's going to be uh, if you want to do anything amphibious. Uh, that battle gets insanely complicated, which we probably don't need to get into at the moment. And uh, of course, the Chosen Reservoir. That's Again, those are obviously both uh, Marine Corps battles. Um, Chosen Reservoir would be interesting to do on a tabletop because obviously that's very, very cold conditions. So you a lot of snow on the ground. People don't often, uh, you know, um, associate Korean War with snow, but trust me, there was a lot of snow. Uh, as anyone who was at the Chosen Reservoir can tell you, they didn't call it the Frozen Chosen for nothing. Um, and battles like that, those would be the, the the specific historical ones that I would be the most interested in, um, but just on, on a personal level. I've got another one for Korea as well, Jim. Mm-hmm. Oak Chop Hill. Oh yeah, that's an army battle. Yeah. Twenty uh, sixth Infantry, if memory serves. Yeah, uh, but that's also a United Nations uh, force. So you'd have. What's interesting is you would have mixed a mixed unit so you would have say south korean u.s colombian were there ethiopian and thailand with all all within that i'm just looking at the the battle here so that would be an interesting one to see on the tabletop because it's got that mixed you know deployment of troops so you would have different units from different um different nationalities that would be an interesting one to do um i'm gonna go ahead I, I'm going to go for Vietnam and I would say doing part of the Battle of Huey because I would love to see that 28mm on the tabletop. Because oh, yeah. I think that would look insanely good because it would also, I think it would remind people, and I could be wrong about Stalingrad, you know, so because that was a very, about the Stalingrad was all urban. So, you know, I think having an, uh, Parts of Huey on a tabletop 28mm would would be insanely interesting to see play it out. All right, so um, the questions were like, again, what, what I guess, and you correct me if I'm wrong, what specific battles in Korea and then what types of engagements? Yeah, you know, whether you have okay. a historical one or if there's a scenario that you think would lend itself well. Well, again, I, I'm biased because of you know my background, but I, those are the two specific historical ones I'd be interested in. As far as a scenario type would go, um, for Korea, I'm, we got it, we were talking about this in a previous episode. The idea of the Chinese human wave attacks um, might be interesting to take a look at. Uh, you might even be able to do that solitaire, mm-hmm. uh, make it almost like a uh, miniature version of like a tower defense game. You know, how long can you hold, a, you know, a given, uh, you know, hilltop or something against like just endless waves or like when Jerry runs his uh, his Zulu games where it's just like, you know, he doesn't have 5000 Zulu figures. Mm-hmm. He just you wipe out the wave and that then that wave just like respawns on the edge of the table and they just keep on coming. Yeah, um, that would be interesting to do. And uh, some sort of casualty evacuation game only because that allows you to bring in um, like again those first use of battlefield helicopters. Uh, probably 99% of casualties in Korea were still evacuated with trucks and, you know, mule carts and, you know, all the usual ways for, back from World War II. But they were done also with, as we've all seen on TV, um, with those very early uh, battlefield helicopters. That would be fun to do um, just as a point of interest. 
So that would be my answer for um, Korea. Um, for Vietnam, okay, I know a little bit more about Vietnam. Vietnam, man, there's there's a there's a million and one choices there. Um, specific scenarios, uh, yes, we have done Huey um, that uh, that Ralph was talking about. Uh, I didn't do it in twenty eight millimeter. I was doing it in fifteen. Yeah, but um, we did do Huey. Um, one of the primary differences between uh, I mean, Huey is a a a, uh, a um, urban battle where you have a relatively low tech but very determined uh, infantry force holding an urban position against a much more highly mechanized force. Uh, that's the U.S. Marine Corps, later the U.S. Army, going into Huey um, later on. Yeah. Okay. Um, that those are the similarities, but the similarities pretty much end there, because one of the problems that the U.S. Marines faced in a way was they were much. The difference of the Germans in Stalingrad was the uh, they were not allowed to use a lot of their heavy assets to really go in there and lay waste to a lot of the ruins and you know really blow the place to hell before they sent the troops in. Um, in fact, in our Huey game we did for the article series a little while ago, every time you use an F-4 Phantom Strength or one of the heavy cruisers that was parked just off uh, in the South China Sea, whatever, however, you know, you made your roll to call on the fire mission, you did the fire mission and you rolled for damage. Okay, that damage was applied and you blew up plenty of troops or whatever, you know, so that's the good news. Here's the bad news. Whatever your damage roll was, that's also victory points straight to the Vietnamese. Mm-hmm. Because you were not allowed to use this stuff, blow up Hue City. Hue City was a uh, the old imperial capital of Vietnam from you know back in the Middle Ages. It was a very very important place culturally and, and um, symbolically to the Vietnamese. And for the first half of that battle, first two thirds of that battle, there was a strict moratorium. You were not firing anything bigger than a law rocket in that town until finally casualties got so high that the Marines were like, look. I'm sorry about your pretty buildings, but guess what? Um, we're wasting them, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> there's all kinds of uh, NBA and Vietcong, uh, both forces were used in there. So the whole idea of collateral damage and civilian casualties, the Germans in Stalingrad were absolutely not worried about that. Um, the Americans in Hawaii City definitely were, at least in the first part of that battle. Uh so you were talking about special forces bases near the border. Yeah. The one that I know specifically is Charlie Company 5th Special Forces Group at Long Bay in early February 1968. You've got um, – that's the, probably the only time that the NBA used any kind of tanks, at least until the Easter offensives of 72 and 75. Um, you've got a special forces base overrun by like five times their number of NBA troops with PT-76 like tank support. Um, so there's all kinds of, uh, of, of, of differences there or different scenarios there. What makes those battles strange for Vietnam is normally the template for Vietnam going into what kinds of battles you would run is either the NVA, PAVN, whatever you want to call them, or the Viet Cong slash NLF, whatever you want to call them. They're hiding in the brush or they, they control a village, or they control a crossroads or something, and the free world forces have to go in there and clean them out. So it's the free world forces on the offensive against a dug-in and hidden enemy. The Tet Offensive, which includes Hue City and Long Bay, sees the opposite. It's one of the few times that the Vietnamese, the communists, came out of the brush 
and came at either the Americans, the South Vietnamese, or the Australians. Um, I think the Philippines were also there. Thai troops were also there. You know, but but mostly those are the three big powers mm-hmm. uh, that make up ninety nine percent of the troops in uh, in Vietnam. Uh, so yeah, those are the ones that I would look at as far as you know, bolt action in Vietnam. So while you were describing one of your battles, uh, the battle I would choose based upon you use Jerry's uh, Rourke's Drift as an example, and this is going to be early early Vietnam. Uh, Pre American mm-hmm. would be. Uh, Bien Dien Phu. Dien, Dien Phu. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, you're talking French, surrounded. Uh, you had French paratroopers jump in at one point to try and relieve um, and hold as much as possible. So, um, yeah, I, I think that would be an excellent uh, one as well, where you could do that same type of wave thing. Because it's essentially you're holding and you have wave after wave of the uh, Vietnamese army. Uh, they weren't called the NVA at that time. They were called no. the Viet Minh. Yes. Thank you. So um, I, I, you know, if you want to go way back, you know, you're talking post Korea. So, you know, what, 1954, yeah. I think it was. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And Empress do a bunch of um, French Viet, uh, Viet Minh uh, troops. Oh. As part of that 28 millimeter range, there was a bunch uh, Empress were doing um, Viet Minh and French paratroopers from that time period of 54. Um, with we're talking about Vietnam, and I'll point people towards this, is if anybody's not watched it, and I do recommend it, is Ken Burns. It's on Netflix. Did a whole 10 part series, mm-hmm. documentary series on the Vietnam War. Yep, it's good. I, from, I, I, I watch it occasionally here and there. From basically pre sort of. French taken over, it's right the way through to the end of the war. Um, it's an excellent series. I do recommend it. The reason I watched it, uh, the reason I caught it was, yeah, I was interested, but also Trent Reznor does the music, so I'm a little bit of a Trent Reznor Nine Inch Nails fan, so. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it was a really good series. But yeah, Empress, we're doing, I'm just going to double check, we're doing um, Indochina miniatures. Um, under the, they've got the Vietnam range. Yep, French Indochina, 28 millimeter. They've got a Vietnam range. Yep, and they've got a bunch of basically French and Viet Minh, Viet Minh troopers in yep. 28 millimeter. So they, they you know, they, they, they've got them there. So if people wanted to start looking at that, because I'm guessing because it's 54, and the weapons are going to be going to be more close to World War Two. You could technically use the bold action and possibly the Korean source book when it comes out to do French versus the Viet Minh. Yeah, possibly. Oh, well, yeah. You'd, I mean, you'd have to do tropical, so some of the equipment's going to be a little different than what was yeah. using um, Korea. Well, there wasn't a large French presence in Korea, was there, Jim? Mm-hmm. Not that I know of. Okay. Yeah, I didn't think. I mean, was, the, so. when, when, once you say UN, um, you know, UN involvement, it, it becomes a lot more uh, diffuse as far as you know what do we mean by that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sure there were some, uh, you know, like French delegates there, French advisors, um, a big time French army that I'm not, I, I haven't heard of it. Um, I'm sure there was something in there though, mm-hmm. but um, the big ones are definitely. Uh, the U.S. and, of course, uh, the South Koreans. Well, it looks like Empress have got their... They've got four, one, two, three, four, four packs of four U.S. 
and I'm assuming they're Marines, um, but it could be U.S. Army um, miniatures up on their website at the moment. Um, so it's about twenty-eight pounds for the, well, it'll be twenty-eight pounds plus postage for for it for sixteen miniatures. For which war? Vietnam. Oh yeah, that could be either one, army or. Mm-hmm. Uh... Yeah, yeah. So, but that that. So if you go on Empress's website and click on the Vietnam option, you'll see v- French Indochina. So that's pre-America's involvement. And then there's a there's the what's just is US Army, I think, or US Vietnam. And that's uh, that's the miniatures that they've been showing off that are available now. And there's like I said, there's 16 miniatures in there, so plus a set of buff plus a set of buffaloes. Technically that's another war. Yeah. Um 1945 to 54 is the first Indochina War. Yeah. And then what we call the Vietnam War, most of the world calls the second Indochina War. Mm-hmm. That begins in, uh, I think it's 62 officially. And uh, America is really involved in it heavily starting in 65, 64, 65, gets out in 72, 73. And then the war wraps up by, uh, by 75. Mm-hmm. But then that just leads to, you know, Sino-Vietnamese War uh, and the um, Vietnamese invasion of um, Cambodia in 78. But they've got the minis up anyway, and they look quite nice, actually, the, the US ones. They do look like a nice set of minis. There's a there's a set of four, which are which is a, basically, it's a one, two, three, basically M60s and a guy with a, what looks like an ammo loader. So they've got you know they've got they've got the support weapons as well. So there's a guy with a thumper and other things. So they're they're quite nice sets of minis. So awesome! You know what? Uh, there is a movie coming out um, about the Anzacs in Vietnam. <laughs> uh, Danger Close, I believe it's yeah. called. Uh, comes out next month. Uh, I've been mm-hmm. seeing ads for it. It looks pretty good. Um, yeah, someone put the trailer up on Facebook on the Modern Miniatures Gaming, I think it was. What was interesting, though, is when you look at that and then you look at the, you know, how we're talking about bolt action in their minis. If you look at their Anzac minis, a lot of them are carrying the submachine gun that's in that trailer. Uh-huh. So it's a version of that. I think it's a version of the Sten. I could be wrong. Um, so you could easily t- take, if you wanted to say, put Australians into a Vietnam setting, you could easily take especially if they're warlords and I know they're doing Commonwealth plastics. So you might be able to sort of convert and get some M16s and some M60s from uh, TAG, uh, the assault group do weapons separately. Um, and you could put them in the hands and things like that. So you could do technically a modern-ish Anzac force. Yeah, we're uh, doing... Uh, conversion jobs. We're doing Anzacs in uh, South Vietnam tomorrow, in fact. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So by the time... Yeah, by the time this episode airs, it'll have actually already happened mm-hmm. um, in Valorant Victory, obviously, uh, with an Australian player. So that's going to be pretty awesome. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure the rifles that they use, I mean, you might be talking about the Sterling, uh, Ralph, as yeah. far as like a version of the submachine gun. Mm-hmm. Um, I know some uh, British units were using that as late as the Falklands. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, they threw away their Sterlings and they picked up captured Argentinian uh, FMs. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, it's because, I mean, the Sterling is like, it's a pea shooter, man. It's from 40 years ago. And the, the, um, the, the Australians, the well. the Australians were using, 
the Australians were using mostly FN falls in um, mm-hmm. in Vietnam. So if you want to do a weapons conversion, we'd have to find some uh, FN falls. I think the British called it the L1. I think the, the Canadians have, have. Yeah. Okay. So uh, there's a, there's a million names for it, but you know that basic. 30 caliber sniper, uh, not sniper rifle, battle rifle. Yeah, that's one me, me father used when he was in the fusiliers. He was in the Northumberland fusiliers, and that's what they called it. They called it the SLR, the self-loading rifle. Yep. Um, that he used when he was out in Aden. He was in Aden during the 60s when Britain wowed in Aden. That affects the uh, combat values for our Australian units, and um, mm-hmm. it reduces their firepower a little bit because it's only a semi-automatic mm-hmm. weapon. Uh, but yeah. it increases their range because it's a 30 caliber round instead of the Americans spraying yeah. and praying with their uh, 223 Remingtons at fully automatic and probably not hitting anything out there in the brush. Mm-hmm. Ouch. Sorry. <laughs> the Marines were there too. You know, we learned a lot from Vietnam. We oh, yeah. uh, definitely learned a lot. You know, um, I can remember being in basic in 86. Um you know, it wasn't spraying and praying. It was a lot of marksmanship, you know. Oh, yeah. So we learned a lot about uh, trigger control, fire control, you know, short burst. Um, the only time we ever got the fire, we got to shoot one 30-round clip uh, magazine uh, at the range at full auto, just so you could see what it was like. And then yep. we got to shoot a, like, 50-round belt on an M60 at full auto, just to see what it was nice. like. And then after that, it Isn't was... That- you know, th- uh, about three rounds, uh, you know, a trigger pull. So, oh, yeah. So, and then when the A2 came out, I don't remember if you did you have A2s, Jim? I was just going to say, by the time I was in, I was only in three years after you uh, in 89, I was in uh, for uh, basic training, infantry school, things like that. And we only had the A2s. And, and you only A2, had three round bursts, right? Exactly. There is no full automatic variant of the A2, or yeah. there's no automatic uh, option. There's safe, single, and uh, three-round burst because the whole idea of automatic weapons fire is, uh, yeah, it's 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 a waste. It's you know, you're, after your after your fifth bullet, I mean, who knows what you're going to shoot at? Yeah. Um, Wasn't the sniper schools created after or during be- during or before Vietnam because the the US had dropped snipers completely as a as a viable force, hadn't they? Uh, Actually, I don't uh, really know. That I don't know when the official Army or Marine Corps sniper schools started up. Um, it mm-hmm. was an option when I was in because um, we had a couple people that went to sniper school. Um, so I don't, you know, and then you, you, you listen to Carlos Hithcock, um, mm-hmm. you know, the famous Marine sniper who made some incredible shots. So. Yeah. Um, it was sorry. It was fifty. It was fifty-five when the sniper schools were were started. So I'm assuming it was oh, after. Okay. It was fifty-five, fifty. Uh, it was established in fifty-five. It was disbanded in fifty-six, mm-hmm. and then re-established in eighty-seven. Really? Well, then That's there the must US have been. Um, there were snipers in Vietnam. I just, yeah. I guess oh yeah. Yeah, there were snipers, and and we had, like I said. I knew a couple of people that He's went to sniper school. I, you know what? I got the division in '87, so they may have been one of the first rotations of people going through. But you know what? There were sniper schools at different divisions or units. Um, yeah. It wasn't like the army-wide sniper school at some point. Like, um, yeah. you know, at some point, I know there were several schools. Like, 
before jungle warfare school started back up. See, mm-hmm. the problem with the U.S. military, and it may be different for other countries, we're always playing catch up. Yeah. We, we base our current doctrine on the last battle we fought. So, you know, so in our case, in the 80s, we were adjusting to Vietnam. You know, we had jungle warfare school. We had sniper school. We had air assault school started up. You know, and then at the same time, we're also trying to, you know, during the height of the Cold War, address the Soviet threat. So I was just going to say, that's the other thing is that we're preparing for the wrong conflict. Yeah. Yeah. The 80s was all about killing Soviet tanks in Germany. Mm-hmm. Good thing the next war takes place in Iraq, you know, <laughs> out in the desert. You know, we were right on the money on that one. Uh, here's a question for you both, because you were both in, in the services. How... Um, in 19, well, you was later than that, but in 1980, when the SAS stormed the embassy, uh-huh. how shocked were you by that, or how was like was uh, not so much shocked, but you know, we we as Brit- the Brit- British, and I remember watching it. I was ten at the time when it happened. Um, I remember the news cutting off for what was going on when you saw these guys clad in black. You know, storming a storming an embassy and and doing that is how how much do you think that played into the creation of some of the more modern special forces that we have now? So things like I know Delta was created in seventy seven. You know, the SEAL team was created in before that and things like that. But how how much of an influence do you think the British SES had on special forces? that are there now, like Delta, like the Green Barriers. That's a complicated, that's a complicated answer to that. That's a deep um, so answer, if, yeah. yes. If, yeah. if the question is framed, how much of an how much of an influence do the SAS have on the creation of modern special forces? Mm-hmm. They're almost the granddaddy of all modern special yeah. forces. They're created in late 1941. Yeah, the Long Range Desert Group. Yeah. Well, they're... They're, they're, they're two totally different forces. They did work together a lot. They worked together so much that people often get them confused, mm-hmm. but they were actually two totally different totally different mm-hmm. missions. The SAS was actually the much more combative guys. Mm-hmm. But anyway, we're getting way off topic here. They're, they're huge. How mm-hmm. much of an effect that particular embassy rate had? Almost none. Because as far as you know, the 80s go, the early 80s go, there's two main influences there. One successful, this is how you do it, and one mm. terribly unsuccessful, yes. here's how you don't do it. Right. Mm. And you have, I mean, GR knows what I'm talking about. I'm talking about uh, the NTP well, yeah. yeah, rate. Yeah. The NTP yeah. rate in 1976, that is literally the template for every special forces hostage rescue mission that's ever taken place. SWAT teams, video games, yeah. cheesy movies, that's all goes back to NTP. Seriously, I mean, or Delta Force. Watch Chuck Norris and Lee Marvin and Delta Force. Man. It's totally <laughs> entity, and they don't even like they they they, they, they like they, they don't even hide it. No, and then the, it. the you know they shouldn't you know. And then the absolutely unsuccessful one is the uh, yeah. the Americans. The no, the, yeah, the Americans at uh, Operation Eagle Claw. Yeah, That's you're how you don't do it. And that took place. Well, it was the attempt. That, that's, that was the basic, uh, that was like, what, 79? Yeah. Uh, late 79, yeah. yeah. So the late 70s show us two templates. Here's how to do it. Here's how not to do it. And uh, I think as far as what special forces were going to look like in the early 80s, 
those were the those were the two things they were really looking at. So let me give you my uh, two cents on this whole thing. First of all, I was 12 in 80, so I really wasn't paying attention to the SAS raid. And two, to be honest with you, it got a blip on our news here in the States. It wasn't like today. You know, it was Mm -hmm. mentioned. I think there was a little bit of video and that was essentially it because truth to be told, it didn't affect the American public one way or the other. So, you know, it's it wasn't newsworthy for us. Taking that aside, I just watched a show. Um, it's a BBC show about SAS, and the first episode was mm-hmm. The Raid. Um, yeah. The audacity that they you know, pulled off to do that raid was pretty ballsy, to be honest with you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, because it, it was essentially, we're going in, we're going to shoot the bad guys, and we're not going to kill any civilians if we can help it. You know, mm-hmm. um, their main goal was to take out the bad guys. And if there's collateral damage and eh, there's collateral damage, mm-hmm. um, you know, so from that aspect, it was pretty ballsy. Mm-hmm. Talking to what Jim talked about, the raid on Entebbe, definitely um, the Israelis <clears throat> know how to do commando raids. There's no yeah. discussion there. They they really refined commando. Um, then you have the precursor to Delta. And the 160th SOAR, Special Operations Aviation Regiment, which mm-hmm. came out mm-hmm. of the disaster in the desert. Yeah. Um, it was thereafter that the 160th was created um, and uh, SOCOM was created. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and Delta was in its very infinite or infant stages. Um, mm-hmm. So it was after that that they really started recruiting and training um, heavily. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if Jim's aware of this, but in the 80s, especially the earlier part of the 80s, up to the mid 80s, special forces was a dirty word. Oh, yeah. Um, It still is in the Marine Corps. You know, honestly, I mean, which is surprising now that you guys have MARSOC. But um, Mm -hmm. but in the my dad was with the 12th Special Forces Group. He was their aviation ops officer. So he was the one that flew, you know, their version of a 160th. They had their own aviation assets, so yep. he was the you know the the one that coordinated the aviation and flew the missions to get the guys into wherever they needed to go. Um, mm-hmm. My brother was a counterintelligence uh, agent with the 12th Special Forces Group, so you know I grew up with this. And to be honest with you, it was a dirty word in the mid to early 80s. Um, well. And as you know. The scenario changed from conventional all-out modern warfare to more of the, you know, ISIS and Taliban and all those kind of mm-hmm. things. Then you saw the value of having non-conventional warfare. So what did the SAS do for us? Uh, a lot of the stuff that the Special Forces, Delta, SEALs, MARSOC, uh, even FBI, Hostage Rescue, ATF, any of the special operations groups... Uh, take a lot from SAS. And to Jim's point, mm-hmm. the Desert Group was not the true SAS. The SAS was actually the guys that were the commandos up on the North Sea, if I'm not mistaken, that were doing those raids yep. and stuff up there. Started off in, uh, in uh, Norway. Yeah. So those that was the actual birthplace of the SAS. The American Special Forces and now the Joint Task Force Canadians came out of the first special services uh, is it brigade or division? I can't remember. The Joint Canadian American Task Force. That sure. is kind of where U.S. and Canadian Special Forces got their start. 
um, before JFK officially recognized them in the 60s. So yeah. um, if yeah, you can't it was tell... JFK, that's how the thing yeah. for the SEALs, wasn't it? Well, the, the SEALs came out of uh, combat uh, swimmers of World War II. Yeah. And then mm -hmm. they were UDT in uh, Vietnam, and then they became the SEALs late Vietnam. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. If you can't tell, Special Forces is kind of like my passion. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so I think it's all of ours in some way, shape, or form. Um, way that yeah, so it, it's, it's, it's amazing to see the evolution from World War II to current day. Um, yep. So, But to answer your question, Ralph... The, the raid on the embassy, I don't know if it directly affected what currently happens, but it did show how things can happen and if they're done right. Because I think at the time, yeah. there wasn't, uh, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think there was really any civilian casualties by the SAS. Um, I think no. the terrorists hit one or two like the policeman right no or i i can't remember off the top of my head not the policeman it was um there was no civilian there was no civilian casualties caused by the sas yeah. going in the raid was a botch partly as well um there was the there was one of the sas members got tangled up uh, caught up in his ropes at the back uh-huh the flashbang going off at the front that caused the fire wasn't there wasn't meant to be a fire there yeah well that's always the risk with the flashbang you know, yeah, the, the flashbang caused that fire. Um, but the main one was being the guy at the back um, was hung up on his ropes. Uh, and there was a fire in the back, if I remember correctly, because right, there's there's a couple of um, documentaries on YouTube um, from programs. So there's uh -huh. an hour and a half one about the raid. And he was swinging back and forth into the flames. Yeah. So I'm not sure if that was the front or the back where there were, when there was one of them coming down, but he was tangled up in his repelling line which was, um, shall we say, quite interesting. But yeah, I mean, supposedly as well, on something else I've read, is when they were rappelling down the back, one of the SAS members had put his foot through the glass of one of the windows. Uh -huh. um, so, you know, these things happen. But it was, a, it was a little bit of a botch. But when they went in, there was no uh, hostages injured by the, the SAS going in. It was the when they killed um, a hostage. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's what um, set that, everything that in motion. The decision at that point. was made. Yeah, yeah, it was the decision was made that that somebody was uh, that they were going in to yeah. prevent further hostages from killing being killed. Um, so, a couple of quick things. Um, well, the Israel, even the Israelis, mm -hmm. who uh, at least post nineteen seventy six have kind of wrote the book on this. Even they dropped uh, one of the hostages at Entebbe. Uh, I think there were three hostages lost, one left behind. Out yeah. of the three that were killed at the time, two were by terrorists, and one was unfortunately by one of the commandos. Mm -hmm. So, as far as you know, the audacity that Gianna was mentioning kicked the door down, and we're not trying to hit any civilians, but we have to resolve the situation one way or the other. Um, a lot of that also comes um, also out of Entebbe. Uh, as far as uh, special forces being a dirty word, that is huge. Um, I'm actually a little surprised to hear about that in the army, but in the Marine Corps, that was that has always been a thing. And this is an institutional problem going back way to you know, World War II when they just outright mm -hmm. disbanded the Marine Raider Battalions. Yeah. Um, because the Marine Corps has always been petrified, uh, justifiably so, that because you know we are our own branch of the service, 
-hmm. but we do not have, and we have our own seat on the Joint Chiefs and so on and so on. There is no, just the way the American government is set up, there is a Department of the Navy, a Secretary of the Navy, Department mm -hmm. of the Air Force, Department of the Army. There is no Department of the Marine Corps. We are part of the Department of the Navy. Yeah. So many people see the, the Marine Corps as America's second army or the extra army or the army that we can do without. Maybe we should just downsize them and just turn them into nothing but special forces. You know, like, it'll be like the U.S. Marine Corps, almost like the, more like the Royal Marine Commandos. Mm -hmm. The Marine Corps has always been terrified of turning into the Royal Marine Commandos. They don't want to do that. They want to remain as a full-blown branch of, of the military. Um and then as far as why the situation for all special forces, at least in the American military, started to turn around in the 80s, a lot of that comes out of Grenada. Mm -hmm. So Grenada goes in in 83, and it's a big success. The only thing that kind of goes wrong in Grenada was, um, again, this is after Eagle Claw. This is after all the American disasters. This is after uh, um, even, um, even Vietnam. You know, everyone said, oh, we finally get a chance to kind of, you know, expunge ourselves of some of the stigma or whatever. Everybody sent in their special forces. I mean, everybody and their brother was incarnated in some degree or another. SEALs, Marines, I mean, who knows who else, you know, Army Airborne, everybody was in there. And uh, there were some friendly fire incidents because nobody was coordinated. Um, you have all these, you know, super motivated, almost too well motivated. Uh, I don't want to say trigger happy, but, you know, gung-ho special forces guys in there that aren't talking to each other. Their commanders aren't talking to each other. In summary, what this leads to is the beginning of uh, joint special forces. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, once you get that joint special forces command, um, to, to put it a, a little bit uh, coyly, now you finally have some generals standing up for special forces. You finally have some stars on your team. And I think that's what kind of starts to reverse this, uh, stigma that Gianna was talking about where special forces is a dirty word you know maybe special forces really does have a place in um the larger panoply of you know the american military and this is even before the fall of the soviet union once the fall of the soviet union happens now you've got there's not going to be another big conventional war okay we're going to get past desert storm real quick but after desert storm there's not going to be another really big, you know, divisions and corps and army yeah. groups, you know, uh, open battlefield kind of a situation. It's all going to be low intensity, non-kinetic warfare. Where are those special forces that we had laying around before? We really need those guys now. Oh, they have generals on their, you know, you know, sitting in offices with stars on their shoulders that are really speaking up for them and really, you know, as their advocates. So I think uh, they had a rough ride in the 80s. Mid '80s, things started getting a little bit better after uh, after Grenada, and by the, by the by the mid '90s, um, I think everyone kind of saw that special forces were going to be a massive player going forward. Special forces are never going to be the main thing; they can't be. They're just not big enough. Right. And there's always going to be a lot of pushback from the rest of the brass because uh, special forces are always looked at as Sometimes, you know, they're so special that they're, uh, you know, sometimes looked at as undisciplined. This isn't what I'm saying about them. This is what, you know, mm -hmm. how, how, how other generals might see them or how generals might see them. They're undisciplined. You know, you hear all these phrases like, you know, they're, they act against the fabric and fundamentals of our military or whatever. You know, we have 99.9% .9 of our regular workaday grunts that are actually doing the real lifting here. Special Forces gets all the glory. They're hot dogs. They're show-offs. They're hot shots. There, there's always going to be that bit of a pushback. Um, 
And, uh, you know, I think that's where I think some of that special forces is a dirty word uh, comes from. And it's, I don't think it's ever going to completely go away. And I think that's where it comes from. Yeah. I, you know, you have your conventional generals who are, look at these guys and you're right. They can be unorthodox. They wear beards. They wear yeah. sneakers. They, they long wear hair. Sneakers. They don't have yeah. to wear uniforms, you know. Um they get all the best equipment, you know, they get all this stuff first, you know, yada, yada, yada. It goes on and on, you know, and mm-hmm. then you'll hear the guys in the special ops community going, you know, these guys don't know what they're talking about. It, you know, it, it's a two way street. So mm-hmm. there's a time and a place for each. special operations. Troops are a tool. They're a mm-hmm. surgical tool. They're not, you know, uh, a broadcasted like weed killer. They are a surgical tool used for a specific purpose. And what we've been experiencing over the last few years is that in some cases they're using spec ops troops in an inappropriate way. They're in a way they weren't designed to be, you know, they're trying to to cut down a tree with a surgical scalpel. Exactly. So, you know, that's the thing. I think it's not as bad as it used to be because now the people that are in higher level of command understand the purpose and the use of special operations troops. So, you know, the old school, the old horse cavalry, if you will, is, you know, has either left the building or is on their way out. And the people that are now in those positions have grown up with special operations, you know, being in the mix. Um, Or after the war on terror, they just straight out changed their mind. Yeah, exactly. So it it is a whole new world for them, which has led to a whole new world of gaming for us. It has indeed. You know, I mean, well, you know, when we were, when I think it was Ben on on OTT was talking about uh, putting out your own sort of getting in touch with them with ideas for buildings. You know, like we know Jerry's getting his rock up to his rock drift. Yep. And I think you had a conversation with Ben, didn't you? Yes, I did. You know about, did you yep. about the um about doing Mog- was it Mogadishu? Yep. It was the, the hotel, wasn't it? You know, yeah. One of the other ones was we, you know, would reach out and go, Ben, we need a four story embassy building, you know, yeah. <laughs> 28 millimeter, you know. It looks like a little bit of a townhouse, but it needs to be four stories. Have this, there you go. And, you know, that type of thing, because, you know, those type of scenarios, you know, lend themselves really well. I mean, you, you look at video gaming, video gaming, especially the first. The, the first Modern Warfare by um, Infinity Ward for Call of Duty. The very first mission you do, the introductory mission, after you've done the, this is how you move around, this yeah. is how you shoot your gun, you know, that type of thing, is the raid on a tanker. You know, and the tanker looks, could be that one that was done by Blacksight. Awesome. You know, you could easily run that as a gaming operation on uh, a tanker tanker on the middle of the North Sea. So from a point of view of the game, yeah, you know, you pick any game system, but then you could throw in your own custom rules to do with weather type of, you know, the, the, the sea being an effect, having an effect, so the ship bouncing up and down, yep. you know, causing, you know, difficulty to hit targets and things like that. Not that it would really, but, but it would, but it would be type of thing that you could put in, you know. In the mission, in the game, it's chucking it down with rain, so you've got a slippy deck, yeah. you know, things like that, where environment is affecting what you're actually doing within that yeah. and you know it, it's so there's lots of things that we can as gamers bring into from talking about you know looking at special forces operations looking at things where special forces are mentioned reading books and things like that you know and, and just 
pushing it forward. Like I said, you know, an idea for a scenario with these bets, not obviously painting up, would be they're an advanced force for an invading Russian force into one of the many Eastern European states in the news at the moment. Mm. Um, so, you know... That you was could, their big could, role in Afghanistan. Yeah. So, you know, the Russian force, the Russians, these modern Russian special forces are attacking and trying to take out an early warning system. There's a how scenario. About, how about special forces on the back of a glacier? Yeah. Back of a glacier? Have, back of a glacier. We have SAS troops in South Georgia, the beginning of the mm-hmm. Falklands War. They tried to land two helicopters on a back of, on, on a glacier. Uh, it didn't go so well. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But, um, you know, especially talk about like ideas for special forces scenarios and you're damn near unlimited. Yeah. And um, not even talking about like hypothetical scenarios, like you read enough history, you'll find where special forces have been charged to do just about everything. Mm-hmm. Excellent. All right, guys. Well, we're uh, just about out of time for this show. Uh, any final thoughts? Uh, no, I'm good. Awesome. Ralph? I'm all good. All right. I'm all good, yep. All right. So uh, we, out there, we want to thank all our Patreon supporters um, for continuing to support our channel. Uh, be on the lookout for the next episode of the Op Center. What is the next episode, Jim? Uh, oh, what is it on? It's on Air War specifically in the Falcons. Okay, perfect. And then uh, look for an upcoming Let's Play of uh, Spectre. Um, I will run through a quick mission on the Black Sight Studio demo board that I got from Adepticon. Nice. Um, so we'll be filming that shortly. And then uh, we're going to try and get back to our regular programming of our uh, video game night on Tuesdays and our hobby time on Thursdays. Um, the week following the airing of the show is when we'll be on back on regular schedule. So um, in the meantime, for Ralph and Jim, this is G, and we appreciate you listening to the SitRep Podcast. We'll see you all later. <laughs>